Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Shiloh, good to talk with you again today. We are doing sections 81, 82, and 83, the Doctrine and Covenants. This is a apparently sort of a short reading here we'll see how how we actually go with the length of the recording you know it's one of those where before we're talking we're like okay so we probably probably will be a shorter episode but um you know famous last words all the time with all of these (laughs) sections all the time section 81 has um, some very interesting historical context to it and the historical context is much more interesting than the uh the section heading suggests I was found some stuff out of the uh, church app on the Joseph Smith Revelations that actually gives better historical introduction to this section. So we'll we'll go over that, talk about Jesse Goss and Frederick G. Williams a bit. Section 82 has this uh, famous pronouncement of the uh, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. You know, Shiloh has some things to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a section that sort of does a little more advancement and rehashing of the themes of the early church. We get a little bit about the priesthood and the keys and missionary work and callings and Zion. And it's kind of a, it's almost kind of a, a, a little bit of a grab bag in terms of the principles and doctrine up to this point in, in the church as these things are, are developing and that the saints are trying to to understand more of, of what's going on, the revelations that Joseph Smith is receiving. So a little more clarity on some things. Uh, there's some subtextual metaphors and stuff going on here. Um, and then some imperatives that seem a, a little out of place like this, uh, make yourselves friends with the mammon of, of unrighteousness. And what does that even mean? It seems like a, a quite an odd thing to read. So we'll have a discussion about that. Then section 83 is some particular... Uh, unique instructions about families and their relationships with each other and then with the church. So we'll have a few things to say about that there. But um, yeah, jumping into uh, section 81. So this section was originally given to a man named Jesse Goss. Later in it was changed to Frederick G. Williams. So I'm going to read out of the historical introduction um, to Doctrine and Covenants section 81 from the Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith's Revelations. This is a publication that has come out from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. So it says the index to Revelation book two identifies Jesse Goss or Goss as the subject of this 15th of March, 1832 revelation. Although the revelation refers to him only as Jesse, Goss had recently been called as a counselor to Joseph Smith in the presidency of the high priesthood. A November 1831 revelation declared that presidents were to be appointed to preside over groups of men who held various offices, including the office of high priest. Joseph Smith was ordained president of the high priesthood at a 25th of January 1832 conference in Amherst, Ohio. On 8th of March 1832, Joseph Smith appointed Goss and Sidney Rigdon as counselors of the ministry of the presidency of the high priesthood. While Rigdon had been associated with Joseph Smith almost since Rigdon's baptism in November 1830, Goss was a relatively new member, baptized sometime in late 1831 or 1832. This 15th of March 1832 revelation instructed Goss in his duties as counselor. In addition, it acknowledged Joseph Smith as president of the high priesthood and stated that the keys of the kingdom rested with him. Because Goss apparently acted as a scribe for Joseph Smith's revisions of the New Testament, between 8th of March and 20th of March, 1832, it is likely that the non-extant original manuscript of this revelation was in Goss's own handwriting. So I'm going to stop there for a second. I'll read the rest of this. But in other words, so we had talked previously about 
the Bible translation that uh, Joseph Smith had, had been doing or, or revisions or, or whatever we want to call it. And that precipitated a lot of the the revelations up until this point. And so as part of this process, you know, Jesse Goss comes in and he serves as scribe for a short period of time. And during that time, there's this revelation received that mentions him by name. And so the the thought is that this original revelation that was written down was actually written in Jesse Goss's own hand, although we don't have that. So here's where it goes. It says, Frederick G. Williams copied the revelation into Revelation Book 2, probably sometime before the 1st of April, 1832. At a later point, sometime after the appointment of Williams as a counselor to Joseph Smith in January 1833, Oliver Cowdery replaced Goss's name with Williams' name in Revelation Book 2 copy, which is the version featured below, where they go in and they actually transcribe in digital text what the actual uh, manuscript says. So someone, likely Cowdery, crossed out Goss's name as well. The published versions of this revelation in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the 15th of August 1844 issue of the Times and Seasons all have Williams' name instead of Goss's. This indicates that Joseph Smith and others regarded this revelation as containing general information about the duties of a counselor rather than instructions specific to Goss. That may seem boring, but it's interesting to me <laughs> because um, because of the other people that were kind of involved in this. And we don't really know wh- what happened to Jesse Goss. We know he was excommunicated, but there's no, there's no record of exactly why. Uh, we know he was a shaker uh, before joining the church. And so the speculation is that as these revelations are happening and they're going through and they're doing the Bible revisions and he's kind of describing part of it. There's this period of a year, about a year, where he's a counselor in the first presidency. And the speculation is that he disagreed with the revelations, the theology that was being developed. And after his disagreements with Joseph Smith, decided to leave. And of course, uh, you know, we don't know how he did the disagreements, Scott. But um, but anyway, that that's context to this section. And, um, you know, it's often said, oh, well, Frederick G. Williams came and so they just replaced his name in there. And all kinds of uh, good reasons why, why that might be the case. But I just think it's, it's fascinating to bring up this history of, of Jesse Goss, um, in light of this section because there were some details there in that part that I didn't know about talking about, you know, how Oliver Cowdery probably, you know, praised the name and then Frederick G. Williams came in and, and it was just some de- historical details that I, I hadn't known about before. So, Yeah, that's really cool. I hadn't known anybody any of that before either. And it, it's fascinating to learn how history is made. You know, we tend to, to think that history just happens and we sit down and re-record it. And that's that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, how, how simple is it to write history? You just write what happened. You know, I had an experiment with my seminary class at one point when we were doing Doctrine and Covenants. And I took him outside and I all gave him five minutes and a piece of paper and a pad. I had to bring a little writing journals actually and record everything that they saw for five minutes. We came back inside, sat down and started going over all the lists of what everybody else had seen. And it was fascinating because there were many things that were recorded that were similar, but they were almost always recorded in a different way. And with maybe a little bit of a different bias. So like, for instance, there were, the lawn had been cut the day before. And so there were some students who were like, ooh, it smells like really great green grass. And the other people were like, it smelled like horrible, like, like lawn mulch. And so there was, you know, these subjective opinions that ended up making it into the record. And then there were things that people saw that other people completely missed. And it was a really fascinating lesson just to be able to demonstrate to them how history is made. And there's no such thing as objective history. So when we learn these little tidbits and facts, sometimes they do seem a little bit mundane, but when we get to know the context and how this happens, and maybe the, you know, maybe this is a mundane historical fact. I actually thought it was really interesting. But when, <laughs> when we get to know these facts, it does sometimes alter the meaning of the story that we extrapolate them from. And this happens, this happens regular. This happens more often than what we would really want to think happens, but it does happen. 
Sure. And to the point that they're making in the section heading and then when these names are replaced and then Joseph Smith sort of the implication was that he approved of those changes, you know, because they, they were published and he didn't necessarily correct them, is that here we have general instructions. These aren't gen- instructions only to Frederick G. Williams. These are general instructions to people who receive a calling to preside in some facet in the church. And I think that could just be extended to anybody who receives a calling, a position of responsibility. And regardless of whatever administrative responsibilities that that person has, they don't forget what Christ would call the weightier matters of the law. Those are spelled out best in verse 5. Wherefore, be faithful, stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. What follows is kind of a definition of what it means to stand in the office that you're appointed to. It says, to succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. So this this word succor, we don't really use it. It's, it's archaic English, but it comes from the Latin uh, root, which means to run to the aid of. So to help someone, but to do it in, in haste or quickly. Right. When someone is in need, you, you actually go to them, right? You go out to them and, and help. It's a very useful word, like in this context of what we might call ministering as a administrative things as opposed to administrative types of things in callings. I like the verbiage that's used there. Sucker the weak, lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Yeah, how many times do we really think about that when we think about our discipleship or our ministering or anything else that we're doing, right? We get callings in church and it usually ends up to to make sure that I did what I was supposed to do, but make sure you attend these meetings. <laughs> <laughs> right. Attend these meetings, talk about these people, do this task, kind of wash your hands of it and go home. And we all fall into these traps. You know, how how much of our discipleship are we really looking out for the other and that's a really hard one that's a really hard one because we have arguments i've heard arguments over the years from my ultra conservative libertarian leaning friends that talk about how we need to spend all of our times and resources and providing for our family and so all we have left is money so we just give money in place of going out and actually becoming physically involved and then takes care of that duty for them. And I don't know, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there needs to be a facial, a one-on-one facial contact where we go out there to do that. It's something I've thought about and I don't have a good answer for. At least when I came across and I was thinking about that, I usually think about kind of distance help versus long-term help versus short-term help. I was living in Utah. There were some panhandlers. Utah to date has been the state that was the biggest, they waged the biggest war on panhandlers of any state I've ever lived in. (laughs) And, uh, and so it was, it was a highly, highly, you know, you were highly criticized to be able to give panhandlers money, give it to the government agencies or give it to the, give it to the, the institutions who take care of the homeless. Don't give it to panhandlers. And everywhere else that I've ever lived, you know, people are, you can tell the legitimate homeless, but then the argument always comes down to, well, they're just going to use it for the next drug fix or for the next this fix. And anyway, I don't want to get bogged down in all that conversation because that's a, that's a whole thing in itself. But the the idea was always, I've always enjoyed having at least a one-on-one facial contact with those who are requiring assistance. Yeah. Because I found that having that, that, uh, that moment of humanity and of dignity between two people. I've learned in my life, you know, we all want to be on the giving side of things, right? We always want to be the giver, the one who comes out and suckers. But it's also always need to learn. And I've had some very beautiful, humbling experiences of being on the receiving end of charity and of God's grace. And learning how to receive has been as big a blessing in my life as how to give. And so I think there's there's two sides of that coin in discipleship. 
learning how to give and learning how to receive because when it's done, especially between two friends, between two people who know each other, or if it's done where we don't know the other person and we still see him face to face, there's a beautiful moment there. Yeah, it, there is sort of a sort of a tension here between this because it's they on the one hand studies have have shown that like what materially benefits people the most is simply to just like give money to organizations right to institutions that specialize in helping the poor like you give them money and they have you know the best connections and tools and ways to actually go and help people materially um but i think that we we lose sight of something if we think that all that people need is material help, right? What's also needed is a personal connection, what you might even call a spiritual help. And while I think that it's very important that we dedicate adequate resources in an efficient way to really truly help people materially, we should never let that be at the expense of us helping in a personal way. Like we need to actually go out and and meet people and get to know them and then only then can we find out the the ways to help them that that can't be can't be provided institutionally, right? Only then can we actually show love. Not the kind of love that comes from just you know someone getting money or, or assistance in an impersonal way, but the kind of love that comes from individual human contact. And then gratitude, right? Because when someone is on the receiving end of maybe some material help, often the institution or the person representing the institution that offers it, you know, the person can say thank you to them and that's all good, but ultimately they're not the provider of that the actual provider of that material possession. So the gratitude isn't to the actual giver completely, right? It's not that personal connection. That needs to happen on a regular basis. And I encourage people to find, you know, have that experience, not for selfish reasons, like, you know, you need to go out and, and have that for your own personal experience. Yes, that's a good thing. But because the people that need help need that as well. That's the kind of help they need in addition to the actual material possession. It really can be, and I think should be both. But in terms of like how people do it and everything like that, that's impossible to prescribe for each individual. You know, like you were saying, every person's going to have different circumstances and be able to provide and help in different ways. I really like that distinction between making sure that the institutions that are set up to help that can do this effectively. And you're right, numbers do show that that really does help a lot of the homeless and a lot of the the disenfranchised more directly and more sustainably than just giving it to random panhandlers. And yet, I, I love I love that it's like, but don't forget the humanity of that as well. You know, my wife, going off on a tangent really fast, just because it fit really, I think it fit in well with what you were saying. But my wife had a few years ago, decided that when she feels prompted that she was going to give $20 to someone, to, to a panhandler or to people who were, were there. And my wife is, a, is an animal lover, just a, a really, really big animal lover. <laughs> so if there's ever anyone out panhandling who has a dog there in like a little pole wagon or something, I mean, it's like they're getting $20. <laughs> that's all it is. And th- that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money for us. And so the first time I saw her doing that, I, my eyes about fell out of my out of my face, and I'm like, I'm like, sweetheart, what are you doing? We can and all go to Wendy's for twenty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I could get a lot of chicken nuggets, and and so the you know, and, and it, bless her heart, she like put her hand down to and and like to calm me down. She she was like, you know, she had her hand waving at me. She's like, calm down, and she taught me a principle that day about how she had found herself mindlessly giving. You know, it become rote. You see someone there, okay, fine, you give them a dollar. You give them a dollar, you give them two dollars, and they mindlessly take it. But something was of something was a disconnect or something connected. I guess that's a better way of saying it. Something connected 
when she gave them a $20 bill because that was enough to have two meals in a day at the least. And it took care of their whole needs for the entire day. And so I was like, well, I'm going to try this. And it was one summer and I was out doing door-to-door sales for my, for my company. And, and so, you know, customers would give me cash and I'd write it down and sometimes I'd, you know, I'd record it, but I'd keep a $20 bill left over or something. And, and in that, whenever I would see someone on the street, I would walk up to them and ask them their name and, and get to know a little bit about them and then give them a $20 bill. Now, Ben, I've given people money all my life. You know, a dollar here, two dollars there, maybe even a five sometime. I've never given anyone $20. And that, I I remember the first time I did that, but the first person I did that to, they just took it and, you know, and, and they shook their head, you know, thank you. God bless you. And then they looked at it. And in that moment, they just broke out into tears and they ran up and they gave me a hug. Now that was a little scary. I wasn't expecting that, but he just broke into tears and he just ran up and gave me a hug. And he says, I can't believe this, 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 thank you. And I was hooked afterwards. And I was like, what, what is it? What just happened? And so I did, I, I I started keeping a couple $20 bills, uh, you know, through my days. And I, I, it became actually a challenge for me to look at people to do it. And anyway, um, it changes people because at that point they see that you recognize their humanity. Now for me, the ouch factor was $20. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I was coming there with a certain authenticity. My authenticity of where, of my really big ouch factor was $20. And I came up to him and I gave him the $20. And I think it had to do not so much with maybe the, the total amount, but it was the authenticity I came to the moment with. And I have been hugged more and had more tears shed and I've been blessed more <laughs> in these moments. It's fascinating when we finally have those human connections. So yeah, when it says sucker the weak, run after them, find them, do what you can to, to take care of them in every way. And if their hands which hang down, you know, that imagery of the hands hanging down, I, I've only seen my children happen to that a few of them, a, a couple of my kids, only a couple of times. But when I've seen a child whose entire body slumps and their shoulders go down and their hands go down and their head goes down, that's a soul sorrow that's going straight to the core. And so when I see that and it says, to the hands which hang down. That's someone who's lost their hope. Mm-hmm. That's someone who's lost their, the spark that there is a good tomorrow ahead. That is someone who cannot see a solution through whatever it is they're going through. That kind of body language to see that happen is someone who's, who's lost it. But the feeble knees, you know, we, we can see this with age, perhaps, you know, age and feeble knees and, and what have you. But I've also had two or three moments in my life that have scared me so bad that your knees become weak and your legs become weak and they shake. And so I can see that there too. And to know that there's, there's someone there for you. You know, my, my wife and I, you know, we owned our own businesses for the last several years. I know you own your own business, Ben. I know <laughs> it seems to be just owning your own business. You're going to have these experiences several times, <laughs> but there always comes that, oh my goodness moment when you own your own business that you think you're completely ruined, that everything is over and that <laughs> everything is, everything is going to collapse and you're going to be a fail and you're a failure and you don't know how it's going to, you're, how you're going to get out of it. I haven't talked with a business owner who hasn't gone through that at least multiple times, right? <laughs> and you're laughing. That means you know exactly what's going on. And and it's funny because in those moments, I look for help. But there's been some times in my businesses, there's there's nobody who can help me. And it's like, how would anybody sucker, sucker me? How, how would anybody run after me to help me? How would me talking about this s- save this problem? And... You know, I've come down to the point of 
I don't have any good answers to that question still. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a good answer for how that works to be able to truly I, I've had friends who have family members who've passed away. What do you say to someone whose friends have, what do you say to someone who has someone so dearly pass away? What do you say to them in that moment of any meaning or value? But that's what we're here for, to be there in those moments. Well, I think that's a good question. You say, what do you say to them? And and I think that's one of the reasons, I couldn't articulate it, but I, the more I'm thinking of it, that's one of the reasons I really like these phrases here. Suck of the weak, lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. There's no, not necessarily any talking going on here, right? Maybe these are moments where you don't have anything to say, but you can be there with them. Right, you can mourn with them, mourn with those that mourn. That's a kind. That's a different kind of language. When words fail us, there's other ways to to bless and love people than just by by speaking. Right. So, uh, there, yeah, there's more depth in that scripture than I than I even thought. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Section eighty two. This section has just a kind of a bunch of different things that it goes through and talks about. This opening verse here uh, says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. So the the implication of this verse here is basically uh, almost like a transactional thing, right? So uh, if we forgive X amount, the Lord then forgives us X amount. It's kind of like a balancing of the scales type of thing. I think there's a different way of looking at the scripture. I'm not saying that that's not the way it is um, or that it's not useful to look at that way. But for me, it's more useful to look at it in a different way. And what's more useful for me to look at it is is not this like, metaphysical reality or, or perspective of the Lord. So like when we forgive others, it's not the Lord that the Lord changes his mind about us. It's that we change our mind about the Lord. And so in those moments that we're forgiving others, we're also recognizing the mercy we can receive. And so it's blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Right. When we forgive others, we recognize the forgiveness of the Lord in our own lives. So again, I don't think that our forgiving others changes the Lord's mind about us. I think our forgiving others changes our mind about the Lord. I think that's a really good way to look at it. You are much more graceful than I was going to be. I don't like the way that we look at this as a quid pro quo <laughs> kind of thing at all. And so so you were much more graceful with that. I'm like, no, that's wrong. It's just a bad way to look. Anyway, <laughs> I've looked at it that way before too. So I can't, I have to be, well, it, I have to be it, yeah. I mean, I can say from my perspective now that I feel like it's a bad way to look at it, but like 10 years ago, that was not a bad way to look at it for me. Like that worked for me, you know, and it just cause it doesn't work for me now. doesn't mean that like 10 year ago, me, you know, didn't benefit from it. So I'd love to have a sit down with my 10 year old self and be like, look up, <laughs> you know, just listen. <laughs> listen you're up. not going to get any of this but listen <laughs> man and i know myself from 10 years ago i wouldn't have listened to anything i'd have to say right, no. I, right. i'd be like you're crazy you're crazy you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> but you know when i see this you know I, we, i've talked about it quite a bit but my experimentation with the sermon on the mounts loving our enemies and my question of asking why didn't god just say hey by the way you don't have any enemies and love everybody Rather, he just says, go love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them, which intentionally use you. Not even the people who like accidentally use you and be like, hey, sorry, I didn't realize what was going on. But the people, but the people who are actively out there doing you harm intentionally, pray for them. And that's really hard. I'm just going to say that was really hard. It's one of the hardest things I still do. But as I've said many, many, many times before, on the other side of that, when I have done that, I've recognized that I've never had any enemies to begin with. 
that my construct of enemy was in my own pride. And through the act of loving my enemies, I came out the other side realizing I never had enemies. And as I have forgiven people their trespasses, I have recognized that there was never really anything for me to forgive to begin with. And that is a really, really hard thing to set with, especially if you have been injured and harmed by someone. But there is a place where we go, and we can go. There's a place that exists where we can recognize that through forgiveness, that we recognized that forgiveness is this action that presupposes that we have been harmed. When in reality, the other person that harmed us was simply acting in their own false self against themselves. Now, we may have been involved in that, but their actions are between them and God. And and so in that whole forgiveness, as I have forgiven those who I have seen have trespassed against me, intentionally trespassed against me, my experimentation, and it hasn't happened every time, I'm not to say that you know, I'm a guru of forgiveness, <laughs> but there have been glimpses I have had that on the other side of forgiveness, I have recognized, at least in glimpses, that the other person was never my enemy to begin with, and that I never really had anything to forgive to begin with, but that I would never have come to that realization and that reality unless I had chosen to forgive. And so for me, this command of, inasmuch as you have forgiven one another, your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, will forgive you, is, as you say, Ben, it's not a metaphysical distinction. This is an epistemic one. That as I perceive that I have nothing to forgive the other person for their trespasses, I recognize within myself that there was nothing that God had, if there was something for God to forgive, it was forgiven already that that thing was let go of already, that the thing in which I needed to forgive myself of was already swallowed up in God, but yet I would not accept the perception of it, that my false self wrapped up in my ego before I had emptied and applied the poverty of spirit to be able to be to mourn and to be meek, that it was that person who would not forgive myself, and I could not see God's forgiveness. And so then it was by in that whole recognizing that as I forgave other people, I began to see that God has never been in a state where he's ever condemned me, that the accuser was always the adversary. And so I think that's really interesting as we come in in here to the, fo- to the following verses, yeah. wh- where we then come into for uh, in verse uh, five, for instance, watch for the adversary spreadeth his dominions and darkness reigneth. The ad, well, we're calling on the adversary already. So the adversary is present in this discussion of forgiveness. And then two verses down, well, I guess even the, the sixth verse, and the anger of God is kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth and none doeth good for all have gone out of the way. And now verily I say unto you, I, the Lord will not lay down. I will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more, but. Unto the soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. Now, in early Mormonism was very much this thought where grace was a matter of merit. That by grace you're saved after all you can do. This is in, this is in uh, the Book of Mormon, in Nephi. And we have done a really good job in trying to minimize the meritocracy of that scripture. But the fact of the matter is, we do have a very merit-based concept Now, we've tried through a lot of apologetics, especially in the last 20, 30 years, to be able to transform that verse to read, by grace we are saved in spite of all we can do. And I know there's a lot of BYU scholars who've tried to make this point and to try to really turn the tide, but they're not being honest and true to the text. The text is actually a very merit-based text. And the concept there is that, as it was interpreted anyway, originally, was that you can, you had to keep the commandments to a particular degree satisfactory to God. And then the grace was sufficient. And then, then you were within the realm of God's grace. And he remembered your sins no more. 
But the minute you left those commandments and covenants, then you entered and then you fell out of that sphere of grace. And once you were out of that sphere of grace where the old sins were laid, you picked them back up as if you had never let them go. Well, remember, if it's Nephi that's that's writing this, he's coming from a law of Moses perspective, and he, you know, he has been sort of learning the way, right? He's he he writes about Christ and and all these things, but he's still heavily steeped in that uh, the the Jewish way that he comes from. He calls. You know, he even degrades it. He says, oh, their ways are ways of darkness and stuff. And so he's coming out of that. And so it, it is very interesting that he would speak of it in, in that way because it's like, yes, there's grace, but there's still this law, you know. <laughs> right. And and so, Ben, as you and I were talking beforehand, I loved what you brought up because it was really mirroring a lot of my own thoughts about this. But it, it's interesting that for me, the way that I've experienced the grace of God and we've talked a lot about always all, all being already worthy and that we are made in the image of God, that true self, right? You know, we talked about Michelangelo's in the, in, in the, in the hall of, of, hall of captives, I think it's called, hmm. and leading up to David, where Michelangelo had said that I can see what I want to carve or what is there in the rock before I start. And he starts with kind of the abdomen and he works his way out. But his entire process of, of sculpting was that he could see what was in the rock and he was just letting everything that was not that thing and he was chipping it loose until he found and revealed what was already there beneath. And, I, and we've used that on, on several podcasts for this true self, false self analogy. And there are many unfinished sculptures and these unfinished sculptures are really crazy to look at because as you look at these sculptures, they look like human beings trapped in stone mm -hmm. and they look like they're, they're captive now to the stone, never to be released as if they were trapped in their false self. But yet at the end of the hallway is David, that, that magnificent, beautiful statue of David that, uh, that, uh, is very, very popular. And so you see what the true released true self is. And so in this regard that when we come into the grace of God, we recognize the true self. But it's that when we put back on the perception and the view and the, the glasses, as it were, of the false self, we immediately pick back up the shame and we believe the adversary. We believe all of the shame and the, the pointing fingers and the criticizing fingers of the adversary once we have left that true self-perception. It's like we return, as Brigham Young would say in the Book of Mormon, would say, like a dog do its vomit, right? Mm. All the things that we left behind, we go back to. Right, right. And it's not that we have fallen outside of God's grace. God's grace is always there. It's that we have, that our perception has chosen to listen to the adversary as opposed to our advocate with the Father. You know, how this flows here is interesting to me. And there's a possibility here that verse 6 is actually related more to verse 5 than I previously thought. Watch, for the adversary spreadeth his dominions and darkness reigneth. And then it's almost like the next verse is like the effect of this. And the anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. It's almost like, okay, this, this verse 6 is a statement of the perception of the inhabitants of the earth because of how the adversary is operating with his dominions and the darkness on the earth. This kind of goes back to our third Nephi 9 and 10 discussion, right? That this, this perception of, of the people is that God is angry with them and no one can do anything right and, and, you know, all is, is folly and, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, because this is the, the perception that Satan sells, that the accuser sells. And so then we come in verse seven and the Lord says, I, the Lord will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more. He's not denying that sins exist. He's saying, I'm not here to accuse you. I'm here to set you free. What happens is that if you don't choose that way and you go and return to your sin, 
Satan is going to heap on all of those sins on top of you. And he's going to say, see, this is who you really are. You really are just this block of stone. You're not really that, that statue. You're really the block of stone. The statue is the fake part. The stone is the real part. It's interesting there that, you know, former sins return. You know, Satan uses all of those rocks to then heave at you, to throw at you, right? Cast the stones. I, I liked uh, Elder Renlund's talk. I don't know if it was his last conference or before. I don't remember which. He talked about, you know, being stone catchers. And I just, I think that bears out in this, this analogy here where we don't allow the accusations of the adversary to deny what the Lord has told us about our worth and his forgiveness and his mercy. I was thinking about using the the movie The Chosen as an example here, but then again, I was thinking, you know what, there might be people who are listening who haven't seen it yet, and I don't want to do any spoilers. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler so, alert. Jesus teaches the gospel. <laughs> Spoiler! Another spoiler alert is Jesus loves everyone. And Jesus loves you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, the for those who've seen season two or caught up on season two or who want to catch up on season two, if you have seen the that part of the chosen yet, and if you haven't, I highly suggest it. It's it's my absolute favorite Jesus movie of all time. Um, I, I think they've just done so phenomenal with how they've portrayed. Uh, Jesus and, and the attitude and, and of their interpretation of the New Testament. But the way that they treat Mary Magdalene in season two and of how she, de- her character develops, I find is highly reflective in these verses. Yeah. So I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to leave it with that. If, yeah. if, if, if you want to go out and watch it and if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you haven't seen it, I don't think I've ruined it for you. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. But moving on to verse 10, section 82, verse 10, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. All right, where to begin with this one? So I, my whole life, I was taught in church about this a quid pro quo God. If you do X, God does Y. And it was like, it's basic, basic mathematics. I remember so many lessons. It's basic mathematics. You do X, God does Y. And the problem is, is that when you go out to do X, even with an expectation, with the assertion, with the attitude, the, the gusto that God's going to do Y, and Y sometimes never happens, no matter how much you do X, then you start to try to fill the holes. And you, then you try to see everything else that you're doing wrong in your life because at that point you've been taught that you do this checklist and this checklist and this checklist and then you get that effect. And we've established in our culture a little bit of what's called the checklist gospel. And this checklist gospel, it, it, it's not inherently bad. It's a great starting point for things to kind of just to kind of make sense. But what happens is very quickly, we come into moments in our lives where life gets complicated and we recognize that we are saying our prayers, we're reading our scriptures, we're going to church, we're serving, we're doing everything we possibly can. There's only so many hours in a day and we're filling them all to the best of our ability with our families, with our work, with our church service and with everything. And yet, as I've experienced in my life, I had no peace. I had no hope. I had no joy. I was checking all the all the boxes. I was checking them and I was rechecking them and I was doing them again and I was self-evaluating and I was finding out what wasn't I doing and I was doubling down on doing other things. And I remember coming back to this verse of saying, "But God, you're bound when I do what I to do what I what you say when I do what I say." I said that wrong. <laughs> God, you're bound to do what you say if I do what you told me to do. And you're not doing your end of the bargain. You need to do your end of the bargain. And there was this attitude as if I, I mean, there was, there were two things here. There was an attitude that number one, I had a claim on God to be able to like, God, you have to do this. You said you are. Yeah. And number two, you're in debt to me. <laughs> yeah. Like you're in debt to me. Exactly. And number two, it was this assumption that either God was unwilling or unable to do it. And that 
I had to have him in covenant to be able to make him do this. And, and this is really what got me to understanding and trying to get into the idea of covenant making. And I, so I've, I've studied covenant making in the Old Testament and the traditions of how covenants were made in the ancient world and why. And largely covenants were made with the divine as quid pro quo type things is they started to see that certain, th- certain actions would produce certain consequences and they tried to recreate those things perfectly year by year. And when you're tied to the land and you see that certain things work with growing your crops, you try to repeat those same things over and over and over again. And sometimes you may start to repeat them over and over again, but your crops start to fail. Maybe the weather, weather patterns shift. But if you've attributed your traditions to a God that then does something for you keeping your traditions and the weather pattern shifts, all of a sudden you have a God that's not keeping its word. And in a lot of cultures, this is how covenant making started. It was an inherent distrust that God is going to do what God is going to do. And so this covenant was, if I promise to do what I promise to do, you promise to do what you promise to do, and we'll both hold each other's feet to the fire. But the fact of the matter is, God is omnipresent. He's there with us all. I love the whole, this is my work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. We don't have a lazy God. You know, we've talked about that whole prayer shift that we both, you know, that I've made. And I think you would that you'd recognize that maybe in yourself, Ben, about praying for other people when we see them in pain or we see that they need prayers. And it's like, hey, God, 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 when someone else is in pain, go bless them. Go take care of them as if God didn't know it already, right? <laughs> as if you love them more than God does. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As, as, as if I was the one God's like, oh, oh, man, thanks for telling me. I didn't I didn't see it before. I'll go over there and take care of it now. No, but God's already over there doing God's thing. And so for me, it was simply to bring my intentionality into including myself into what God is already doing. And my prayers changed. And the way that I supplicate the divine. And I, and I petition the divine. And so in a lot of the same ways, that, that's the same way that I see God's already involved in our lives. A hundred percent, all the time. Every second, every hour, every day. God is already doing God's thing in our life. God's not the... God's not the part of this equation that doesn't hold up his, quote unquote, his end of the bargain. <laughs> so we're, we're the only ones that do that. But the fact of the matter is, is a lot of this quid pro quo kind of stuff, we end up in false expectations about what this is supposed to look like. And what I found is that when I finally fell in love with God, and I knew that God was in love with me, my actions were no longer, I don't trust you to do what you say to give me spiritual blessings whenever I do what you say. It was, I know that you love me, and I love you too, and I'm just going to be this because this is where I feel your love. And all of a sudden, just actions come from that. The thing is, is, is it's not a, it's not a, a permanent state of being. It's not that it, sometimes it feels like chasing a high in my life. And, and I don't know if that's much healthier, but it, man, to experience those few, those, those moments of God's awe and love and grace become those fuel induced moments that make everything else worthwhile. So I no longer have this concept of God of, him being bound to my, to my expectation when I do what he says, because I naturally assume God's already doing God's thing. And I just get to ask to be a part of it. Whatever that looks like and what, with whatever that's going to mean. And I, I see how that, that could come out in this with this, you have no promise. You know, often that's look like a transactional thing, but rather it's, it's a, it's a statement, like it's a descriptive thing. So, you know, you're, I'm, I'm already in this relationship. And, you know, as part, you know, when you're, when you're operating within this relationship, you will, you will come to view things as, as I do. And you will understand these, these bounds, these relationships, these promises, so to speak. 
And so I, I think that's a, another way of viewing with that. But it, it is a, it is a scripture that, uh, at least that verse 10, it is something to, to wrestle with quite a bit. So, um, the, the next thing that stood out to me in here was when he starts getting into a discussion. So the, the discussion starts off with these, these bonds and, you know, he talks about, uh, bounding together these people in, in a covenant and, and then he gets into discussion about Zion. And this is kind of the, the united order or united firm type of, of thing here. But then it goes into using the discussion about Zion. And this is kind of interesting here because Zion gets this feminine pronoun, right? And uh, at the end of verse 14, it says, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Therefore, I give unto you this commandment that ye bind yourselves by this covenant, and it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. So what we have right here is sort of a what I would call a subtextual metaphor. And and the metaphor here is that of marriage. So all throughout the New Testament, the church, so to speak, or or the the members membership of the church is compared to the bride and Christ compared to the bridegroom. And that the the bridegroom comes and and then when Christ is unified with his church, that's the marriage, so to speak. So here we have Zion, who is, I guess, the the representation of the church here, personified with this feminine pronoun. Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Zion is the bride, right? Putting on her wedding garments. And then, therefore, I give unto you this commandment that you bind yourselves by this covenant, and it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. So this is the marriage feast, right? And so it, it's interesting here. It's not explicitly said, but this is sort of this subtextual metaphor that I see here that is continuing of this this marriage thing. <clears throat> I'm not sure necessarily what to pull out of that, but but that's what that's what stood out to me about that there. <laughs> then then we come into these verses that um, are probably more difficult for the. Um, the capitalist side of me to swallow. <laughs> yeah. So on the last half of, of 82, as I've said before, I have a, an interest and it really goes back to our, our, our podcast on third Nephi nine and 10. But I have this, this fascination now with the intellectual history of how our ideas of Lucifer and Satan have evolved and, and how that archetype of the adversary has evolved and have kind of come into our lives. And I've learned a lot of really interesting things, but it's in verse 21. So I always kind of perk up a little bit and it's a really bizarre thing for me to perk up whenever I see Satan appear in the scriptures, <laughs> because I'm like, man, what is wrong with me now? But uh, yeah. And it's funny because I started ordering a bunch of academic press books um, on, on the intellectual history of the devil. So I, I started getting books on the devil and Mephistopheles and, and Lucifer and, and Satan and Hades. And, and so my wife, she's, the first couple of books came in and she, and she's like, okay, all right. And she was kind of, you know, Shiloh does Shiloh's thing, but they, they just kept on coming. <laughs> <laughs> and so she had to sit down with me for one point. It was like this, it was like this intervention. She's like, I think we need to have a talk. <laughs> I, I found like, the well, candles well, in the closet. That's right. <laughs> And so, and so I kind of explained what was going on. She's like, "Oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense." I'm like, <laughs> it's so, Ben's fault. <laughs> it's Ben's fault. I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll still say it's your fault next time. But here in verse twenty-one, it says, "And the soul that sins against this covenant and hardeneth his heart against it shall be dealt with according to the laws of my church, and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption." Okay, so these buffetings of Satan, as we've talked about before, this is simply the adversary doing the adversary's thing. So it's interesting, The in going back to the intellectual history of Satan, is that there was no real concept in Hebrew and in the ancient Israelite construct of, of a hell. So they had this thing called Sheol, which was just this dark, gray, weird place that you go when you die. It was just very drab, it's just very under the boring. ground. That's... You know, it's actually the Greek Hades, you know, it just means below the earth. Yes. Yeah. It was just go, it was, and it was just, it was just depressing and nobody ever wanted to go there. And it wasn't until after the Babylonian, the Babylon came out of the Babylonian conquest, 
when Jerusalem was sacked there in in about five what five eighty five eighty five BC, and the Jews were carried away. A good portion of the Jews were carried away captive into Babylon, and then Persia. You know, then you had Syria come down, and so you had a lot of Jews going back home by way of Iran and some Persian influence. And up and until that point, nowhere in Judaism or anywhere in the the thought of the ancient uh, the ancient Israelites was an idea of an embodied evil being. The serpent in the Garden of Eden myth was not an evil being. It was just a, a thing doing a th- what a thing did. It was a cunning serpent doing a cunning serpent thing. But the idea of an embodiment of evil in the region actually came from Zoroastrianism. And so th- as the, the Jews came into contact with Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism had, had a being that was an embodied evil. And so it was at this time that they started to kind of change the way that they saw Satan, the, the, the Satan, the Satan, in their, in their religious narrative. And up until this point, though, is Satan was simply an accuser. It was an adversary. It was an accuser as if in a court of law. And so as an accuser in a court of law, this makes a lot of sense as to why Satan was in heaven accusing Job of not being as pious as everyone else thought he was. Right. Because the Satan up there was simply just a, a person in heaven. It was like the prosecuting attorney that, that was the side who accused everybody of doing all the bad things. And the Jehovah in, in this, this Jesus figure that would later appear was the non-accuser. He, he's the advocate with the father and the Satan was the accuser. And, and it's just, it's fascinating how this used, this plays out, this played out over time because now we have the buffetings of Satan. And what are the buffetings of Satan? Well, it's the accusations. It's the voices in our heads that tells us we're not worthy. It's the voices in our head that tell us we're not enough. It's the voices in our head that tell us that we're hopeless sinners. It's the voices in our head that rob us of our hope, that rob us and create identities that we can't overcome. It's the voices in our head and that voice that comes and tells us that we are less than children of God. Anything that tries to bring us down is the buffeting of Satan. And so we stand there as our own judge. And we get to choose who we're going to listen to. Are we going to listen to our advocate? Or are we going to listen to the prosecuting attorney? Are we going to, Who are we going to allow identify us? And so in this, I see that coming into this relationship with God is what liberates and brings us into an awareness of who and what we always already are, this true self that we always are. But the adversary, just like he he pinpointed Job and started accusing Job of all these things, and God is like, no, 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 you don't know my servant Job. And in the same way, God looks at the Satan there and says, no, 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 you don't know my servant Shiloh. You don't know my servant Ben. You don't know my other servants and this applies to each and every single one of us. You insert your own name. And so that's what God is telling Satan at any given time. You don't know my servant, my child. And so in that way, when we choose to listen to the adversary, it's not that God cuts us loose and now we're just down there and he gets to torment us. It's that we choose that identity over the identity that God has in revealing our true self of what we have always already been. Hmm. You pull a lot out of that verse. <laughs> I liked that verse. That's good. That's it good. spoke. It, it spoke to me. <laughs> I told you I perk up whenever I see Satan. Now I'm like, hey, there's Satan. <laughs> so uh, these these verses, uh, well, 22 and 23, but um, particularly 22 here, we have this this phrase that is. Whenever I come across it, it's so odd to me and I have to like sit and think about it for a little while and, and like I, I kind of get what it means, but it's just, it's such an odd thing to say. And it says, make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness and they will not destroy you. What does this mean? Is that a rhetorical question? Or are you asking? No, you're supposed to answer this question. Oh. <laughs> I can tell you what I, I've interpreted this as. Now I've, I've heard a lot of better interpretations. And as I've been reading, as I reread section 82 today, I've been thinking about this all day long. And I've been, 
I've been really busy um, with with a lot of work, and I haven't been able to go find out all of the things. So here's my here's what I've always interpreted as, and I've actually heard better interpretations. So maybe some of this will break loose when I say this, and uh, and you tell me what you think. But for instance, when God tells His saints to purchase the lands in Missouri, mm-hmm. and why does He do that? Because even the law says you can go out and you can you can go out and you can homestead. You can go out and you can pick land that hasn't been inhabited yet, and you go out there and you can pick it, you can homestead it, you can you can take it as yours. But he he has them go out to purchase it by the government and by the laws of the land, so that they have absolute claim. So there's there's no there's no even evidence or even thought. There can be no possible thought of impropriety. Right. Right. And so in this uh, in this is kind of what I see this here. I see this as kind of a matter of practicality. That making yourself friends with the mammon of the unrighteousness is this concept of, it's almost like a poverty of spirit going into meekness in that we have learned to be everywhere. And I don't think the saints in Missouri were meek. I think, I think that was one of the things that ended up getting their trash kicked, you know, sending them out of Missouri that they hadn't made themselves meek. Right. There's so many stories about their pride. That this is our land. God's bringing us here. You're gonna, you're gonna get kicked off this land. There's all sorts of stories. I'm reading a, reading a book right now about the 1838 war, which documents really well. Um, the saints never quote unquote deserved what they got. Like there wasn't any deserving what they got, but they were not innocent bystanders either. They, they, they fanned a lot of the fire and threw a lot of fuel on those, on those uh, little smoldering fires that popped up here and there. They put a lot of fuel on those fires. It wasn't impossible for the enemy, their enemies to justify their actions. Yes. And so in, in that way, there were a lot of times when the saints could have possibly stamped out those fires. And instead, they, they put a lot of fuel on, the fi- on, on those embers in the, in the form of religious piety. And this is our kingdom. This is our God. This is what we're doing. And you can't do anything about it. And the Missourians said, well, yes, we can do something about it. And then they did. So in this way, we have going down and making friends with mammon of unrighteousness. It's this way of emptying yourself and becoming meek so that there's no sense of impropriety that you really do belong everywhere. The saints could have existed in peace in Missouri. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that. But through one act of pride over another act of pride, through one through one mistake after another, it just kind of kept on fanning the flames until the whole fire broke out and the war happened in 1838. So when I see that, it's make friends with those who are not emptying as you are, and they will not have the means to destroy you. Yeah. I see it as, yeah, like don't find, you know, don't uh, try to give them any way to justify their, uh, their actions towards you at all. Yeah. And, and that really goes that, that makes 23 make a lot more sense with that explanation because the Lord then says, leave judgment alone with me for it is mine and I will repay. Peace be unto you. My blessings continue with you. You know, just don't, don't retaliate. Let it be. The Lord will take care of it. You know, we've talked about this before. Whereas, you know, often we, we look at these situations and we think, okay, you know, I don't have to destroy my enemies because the Lord is going to destroy my enemies for me. <laughs> right. You know, he's, he's going to take that, take care of that. And that may even happen sort of metaphorically, right? But I think it's, it's, it's something the Lord gives us in order in that moment, because, you know, if he says to us, Hey, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want the destruction of your enemies because that's wrong and you need to repent right now, you know? <laughs> and, and often we're not ready for that step. And so the Lord gives us that intermediate step, which is just give it to me. I'll take care of it. And it's, it's kind of that hand up, right? It's, it's the hand up to say, we, we may need that little step, that little moment where we think, okay, well, I believe they deserve X. And if I can at least believe that the Lord is going to give them X, then I don't have to be responsible for dishing that out. And then the next step is to realize as we let that go is to then come into a place where we're more open to realizing, 
oh, you know what? The Lord actually doesn't need to do X. It's okay. You know? And, uh, so it's, it's a great, I, I think it's just a very beautiful way that the Lord gives us like this journey, right? That he, that you've talked about before that the Lord gives us in order to arrive or, or, or travel towards an understanding of the fact that our enemies don't, aren't really our enemies. Right. Yeah. And I think that even goes into verse 24 where it says, for even yet the kingdom is yours and shall be forever if you fall not from your steadfastness. You know, the, the kingdom, it's it's right there, that kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as are though those who are persecuted. And those who are persecuted, though, they have no identity to this earth. And so the, the early saints, they had a huge amount of identity to where they were going with Zion, who they were, what they were doing, how they were going to go conquer, you know, the land for, for Zion. And it got them in trouble, and and they didn't go there in meekness. So yeah, it's uh, I, I think that 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 goes consistent there with all with all of those. So finally, here in eighty three, we have two verses: women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken, and if they are not found transgressors, they shall have fellowship in the church. And if they are not faithful, they shall not have fellowship in the church. Yet they remain upon their inheritances according to the laws of the land. All children have a claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age, and after they are, they have claim upon the church, or in other words, upon the Lord's storehouse, if their parents have not wherewith to give them inheritances. I don't have a lot to add to that, Ben. Do you have anything else that you wanted to? <laughs> um, you know, there's this interesting little caveat here that, uh, you know, women, if they're not found transgressors, they shall have fellowship with the church. And I, I saw that as you know, interesting to throw in here because I think as you read it, the implication is that, okay, fellowship then implies that they have claim upon the church over in verse five, uh, the storehouse for, you know, for support, right? But I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what fellowship means. Um, because it doesn't explicitly say that that's what fellowship means, right? That, in fact, it says that the storehouses be kept for consecration of the church and widows and orphans shall be provided for as also the poor. It doesn't give a qualifier on who, you know, whether those people, the widows and the orphans and the poor are transgressors or not. So I'm not really sure what necessarily the, the, the purpose of, of stating that fact in verses two and three really is. I think more important in this section is, is again, what we find in verse five and six. That it really is a fundamental function of the church to provide for those who are in need. And, you know, that, that is something that we have a responsibility, a charge that the Lord has given us, an invitation he's given to us as a group to provide for those in need. And uh, that, that uh, invitation or charge or responsibility, whatever we want to call it, has, has never been withdrawn. Yeah. I like that. Well, Ben, do you have anything else you want to cover about the chapters that we haven't covered so far? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, we did get through a little bit earlier this time. Yeah. <laughs> I think this may be one of the, the, the shorter episodes we've done in a very long time. So this will be a, a nice reprieve for the editors. So <laughs> Kyle and Catherine, thank you again so much for everything that you Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah. We could not do this without you. You are you are the, the glue that holds all of this together. So <laughs> thank you again so much. Until next week, I'm Ben Peterson. I'm Shiloh Logan. And thank you to everybody for listening. 